are in Isaiah, and we made it through the first four chapters. God has been speaking against Jerusalem and Judah up until this point. And as you remember from your history, the time Isaiah was writing was about the time the northern kingdom was going into exile. So at the time of Isaiah's writing, the southern kingdom still has 100 years to go. So Isaiah is speaking right now against Judah and Jerusalem, but he will change focus here in chapter 5, and it appears that he is broadening his scope. So chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. The way I read this is this is Isaiah talking about the love of God for his vineyard. I started reading this the other night in New King James, and I thought that the sentence construction was extremely awkward. The sentence construction in English Standard flows better, but they both have the same sense. And the way I make sense of it is, let me, Isaiah, sing for my beloved, God, my love song concerning his, God's, vineyard. Now, there's a couple of things that struck me as I was reading this. First, of course, a vineyard, but one of the things that he builds in his vineyard is a watchtower. What I take that to be is God saying of Israel, the only reason you guys exist is because I watch out for you. You are the smallest of nations. You are placed in the crossroads of the Mediterranean, and if I were not your watchtower, you would not exist. And so one of the things that's going to happen as we go through this, he is going to start removing protection from them, and they are going to, of course, wind up eventually going into exile. So verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard, What more is there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? So in a minute, he's going to talk about his vineyard as being Israel and Judah, which is the whole nation of Israel from north to south. It's interesting that he is calling the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah to look at what he has done and say, is there anything else I could have done? I have done my very best to create a productive and fertile vineyard. And of course, it's not productive and fertile. Is there something that you as the judges here, Judah and Jerusalem, is there something here as the judges that you can point to that I have not done? And, of course, the implication there is, since he, God, did everything possible to have been done for his vineyard, the fact that it is yielding wild grapes or worthless grapes is the fault of the vineyard, not of the vintner. 
that's obviously what he's setting up here. If you read Malachi, God asks these rhetorical questions. And this is one of those rhetorical questions of, hey, I've done everything possible for my vineyard. You guys got anything else I should have been doing? And part of that, by the way, is remember when in Genesis, Abraham is negotiating with God over Sodom and Gomorrah? One of the things that Abraham says is, should not the judge of the world be just? The idea there is, you are the judge of the world, therefore it is extremely important for you to be just. And what God is doing here is he is establishing that he is in fact being just as he is about to deal with his vineyard. Just as a parenthetical side note, one of the things that people who are angry with God assert is that he's not just. The world is not just and the world is not fair and a real good God, if you will, would not allow the stuff that happens in this world to go on. So what he's doing is he's establishing that his behavior here has been just. Verse 5, now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled upon. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. So what he's saying is, I did my best to set up this vineyard. It is a failure. So what I'm going to do is I am going to abandon the vineyard. And notice that he's saying, I will remove its hedge. I will break down its wall, which is to say, I will cease protecting it. I won't protect it any longer. And then the next thing he says is, I won't prune it. One of the things that Ray says that I enjoy, if you've got a piece of land, you have a choice. You can either have it grow food or you can have it grow weeds. But if you don't do something affirmative to make it grow food, it will grow weeds. At this point in the exercise, he hasn't done anything against it except to remove stuff. He's removed its wall. He's removed its hedge, and he ceased to prune it. So with no wall, no hedge, and nobody pruning it, it is going to return to thorns and briars. And then to sort of top things off, he's going to withhold rain. I'm not sure how we're going to get thorns and briars without rain, but he's God and I'm not. Verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are its pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And by the way, that's a Hebrew pun. Justice and bloodshed in Hebrew are homonyms. They sound alike, as are righteousness and outcry. Now, at this point, I'm not sure what he's saying. So for the vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel. That sounds like the northern kingdom. And the men of Judah are its pleasant planting. Well, that sounds like... Israel is the entire nation. And I quite frankly am unable to disambiguate that. I just don't know which way it's to be read. Now, since he's calling the men of Judah and Jerusalem to witness, it's certainly possible that he's talking about the northern kingdom, which is going to be in the process of going into exile fairly quickly here under the Assyrians. That's possible. It could also be since he has been talking to Judah and Jerusalem 
all along up until now that he's talking about the entire nation and he then regards Judah as being, which it is, the royal tribe, the tribe from which kings come. That works too. As I said, I'm just not able to sort that out. So verse 8, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. Woe to those joining house to house and fields to field is talking about people who are gobbling up real estate. Remember in the Torah, the deal is every jubilee year, the people go back to the land that God put them on. So God divided up the land in the book of Joshua, and each tribe has got its own plot, and each family within each tribe has got its own area. And for 50 years, you can do real estate, you can plant, you can reap, you can sow stuff, you can do whatever you want. But in the year of Jubilee, everybody goes back to where he's supposed to be. A couple of Shabbats ago, when we were reading the, the section in the Torah about uh, slaves, and it took you then to Ezekiel, where the prophet said to Israel, hey, folks, you need to free your slaves, Hebrew slaves. Mm -hmm. And they all freed their slaves and then discovered that there was nobody to do the laundry and went out and scooped them all back up. That just sort of naturally annoyed God. So the idea here is real estate dealings have been going on, which is fine, but I am inferring from that that the year of Jubilee is not being observed properly in that the real estate deals don't get unwound every 50 years like it says in the Torah. So woe to those who join house to house. And so what it's saying is you've got real estate speculators that are buying stuff up and then not releasing it at the Jubilee. I am assuming that's what it means. But certainly joining house to house and field to field is somebody who's scarfing up all the land. Verse 9, the Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For 10 acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and an omer of seed shall yield but an ephah. What we're talking about there is the land is going to become barren. Several places in the scripture, one of the things that God says when he gets ready to send his people into exile, is you're going to go out and you're going to plant a lot, but come harvest time, you're going to reap very little. That's what this is saying. The amount of yield here is not anywhere near what the land would normally yield were God blessing his people. We started this whole thing with him being grumpy with his vineyard. Verse 11, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feast, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. One of the things, remember, we talked about in the earlier chapters is Israel was extremely prosperous, and they had lost sight of why they were extremely prosperous and had forgot about God, weren't paying attention to him. And when you get up early in the morning to drink and so forth, what that indicates is that you're not getting up early in the morning to go out and plow your field, which means that you're not a farmer, which means that you are an aristocrat of some kind, 
who has got a lot of money and doesn't have to get up and go plow all day or do whatever is a, a farmer does all day. He has enough leisure that he can sit around and drink and enjoy the company of his friends and so forth because he is wealthy. And wealth is not per se a problem. It's just that wealth is the most difficult of all tests. Because when you're poor, you got nobody else to depend on. When things are going really badly and you're really poor, very easy to throw yourself on God's mercy because you got nothing else. But when the bank account is fat and everything is going well and the barns are full and all that kind of stuff, the tendency is to lose track of how you got all that wealth and the blessings that were given to you. And that apparently is what's happened here. Verse 13, Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. So there you have who's doing all the reveling. When we did Proverbs a year or so ago, there's two Proverbs that are dealing with wealth, and I haven't looked them up, so I'm not going to quote them exactly. But one proverb says that a man's wealth is his strong city. And another proverb says that a man's wealth will not protect him. So it seems like the two proverbs are saying opposite things, but they're not. In the case where Israel or any other society is dwelling securely, a fat bank account is a buffer against the things that happen in life. You get a blowout on the tire on your car. It's, I don't know how much for a set of 500 bucks for a set of tires. If you have a nice fat bank account, you've lost a half a day while you get a new set of tires. If you don't have a fat bank account, you now don't have any transportation, you're now late for work, you're now subject to get fired, all sorts of negative things can cascade out of a simple blown tire. Whereas the wealthy man, it's just an inconvenience, I've got to go spend half a day getting a new set of tires and big deal. But for somebody who's poor, it is a big deal. It's a catastrophe because a whole bunch of stuff cascades from that, and furthermore, he probably doesn't have the money to buy a new set of tires. So the first proverb where it says a man's wealth is his strong city is talking about that. This other proverb which says your wealth will not protect you is talking about the situation we have here. And that's when God has decided to deal with Israel. And all of the wealth of the nobility in Israel will not protect them from the Assyrians or the Babylonians who are coming down to send them into exile at God's behest. So if you read the two Proverbs, it sort of seems like they're contradictory, but they're not. It's talking about completely different circumstances. And what's happened here is these folks have trusted in their wealth and they have forgotten God who gave them the ability to gain that wealth and because they have forgotten God, they are going to go into exile, and all of these calamities are going to befall them, and their wealth will not protect them. Verse 15, man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low, 
But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and no man shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Remember, we started off talking about his vineyard, yielding wild grapes, and the wild grapes that it is yielding are violence and injustice. He then says, is there anything else I could have done to prevent this? You know, calling a witness. Have I been unjust or unsparing in any way with Israel here? Of course, the rhetorical answer is no, of course not. So now it says they're going to go into exile, and it specifically says that the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. So we have already established that the chain of events here is just. That was the purpose of the rhetorical question at the beginning of the chapter. And now that the consequences are coming to pass, he says, this is completely just. And furthermore, nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. And this goes back to the proverb that says their wealth is not going to protect them from this. Because what's going to happen is the Assyrian army is going to come through and it's going to pluck them up by the roots and it's going to send them all into exile. And all of their fine houses and big estates and all that kind of stuff are going to be dwelling places for nomads. Verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart robes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work, that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near. Let it come that we may know it. Stop there a minute. What is being said there? For those of you who are around for the Jeremiah study, I always go back to that. One of the things that Jeremiah talks about is that Judah and Jerusalem have fallen into iniquity. And they have the temple of the Lord in the midst of the city. And they believe because they have the temple of the Lord in the middle of the city and they have a covenant with God that God will protect them. So whenever any danger comes around, they point and say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, which is to say, there, there's our refuge. There's our place of safety. And what God says is you have made the temple of the Lord like a den of robbers. You don't run to the temple of the Lord to repent. You run to it to hide out until the heat goes down. What's being said here is virtually the same thing. So woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sins as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come that we may know it. So what they are doing is they are mouthing pious words from the covenants, and they are expecting that to protect them. And what God is saying is, no, it isn't going to protect you at all. Because the only thing you remember about the covenants are the good things. You don't remember the downside of the covenants for disobedience. So what they're doing is they are calling on the Lord for protection. They're saying, come, let us see what you're going to do. Remember at the end of Deuteronomy, when Moses is talking, he's saying, you know what's going to happen? You are going to go into exile at some point because you're going to go away from the Lord. You're going to forget his commandments. You're going to not do justice. You're going to do all of the things that God says not to do. And you're going to go in exile. 
And what you're going to do is you're going to whine. And you're going to whine and say, well, if God was with us like he promised, none of this bad stuff would happen to us. And what Moses is doing is saying, no, you're the ones who are to blame, not God, so don't whine. So what's happening here in Isaiah is the same thing. They are saying, as they're looking at the Assyrians coming down, let him, God, be quick. Let him speed his work, that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near. Let it come, that we may know it. In other words, God, show your power on our behalf. And what God is saying is, no, not going to happen. And what Moses is saying is, no, it's not going to happen. And all your whining when it doesn't happen is not going to do any good. In fact, I'm going to tell you that's going to happen. I'm going to tell you you're going to whine so that you can go back and read it and recognize why your whining didn't do any good. It's Deuteronomy 31, verse 16. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us. The deal is they're going to break the covenant, they're going to whore after other gods, and then when the consequences show up, they're going to whine and say, well, if God hadn't abandoned us, none of this bad stuff would have happened. The point Moses is making here is he is prepositioning ahead of time. You're going to whine. Your whining isn't going to do any good. And this is what's actually going on, so that as you're looking up from Babylon or Assyria or wherever it is, you can come back to these words and you can recognize that God has, in fact, been faithful to his covenant. He has done exactly what he said he would do. You're the ones that have failed. So Isaiah is saying the same thing here in 519, where it says, let him be quick to speed his work, and so forth. So you have people who have violated the covenant. They are about to be in serious trouble. They're going to be up to their hips and hairy Assyrians. And they're going to call on the Lord. The Lord is not going to listen to them. And they're going to whine, just like Moses said they would. Verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This, by the way, is modern liberalism. Liberalism makes an industry of praising things that God calls evil. Liberalism, by the way, is satanic because liberalism denies the supernatural. The only thing they recognize is the material, which means that they are cutting themselves off from the majority of human history and the majority of human experience in focusing only on the material. And by denying the spiritual, they are satanic. Now, don't get me wrong, there are lots and lots of liberals who are not personally evil. They are simply deceived. However, there are a whole lot of them that are personally evil. And their philosophy makes it easy for them to justify the evil that they do by calling it good. To use an example that you're all familiar with, 
they call abortion choice. Choice is good. Abortion is not. So we don't call it, at least not initially, abortion. We call it choice. So they are very good at using words to ensnare. 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. That's what we're talking about. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. What we're talking there is substance abuse. You've got now major cities in the United States who are facilitating hard drug use. Denver is debating having shooting parlors where you can go in and get medical assistance to shoot your heroin. They are debating legalizing magic mushrooms. And one of the things that the homeless population in Colorado is, is a function of us being the first state to legalize pot. And so what we became is a magnet for potheads. And so you wind up having these semi-homeless people who have shown up here for pot. And now we're going to be a state that also attracts other kinds of druggies. 24. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Their root shall be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. Who do you think is aborting most of their own children? That's the blossom. That's where the fruit is. So the root is rottenness, which means they have no roots. They don't look to the past. And again, we have this cottage industry of trying to deny our history right now. Going around taking statues down and so forth. That's rottenness in the root. And then their blossom, go up like dust, indicates that they have no fruit. They're killing their own children. 25. Therefore the anger of the Lord is kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations afar off and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps, not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows bent, their horses' hooves seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion, like young lions, they roar, they growl and seize their prey, they carry it off and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea, and if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. So what he's talking about is, I have had it with Israel, and I am going to whistle up, in this case, the Assyrians, and they're going to come and destroy you and send you into exile. And in fact, the exile of the northern kingdom is so complete that they are lost to this day. I think God has not lost track of them because God says in other prophets that he hasn't lost track of them and he will bring them all back. 
And as I say, it's a great cottage industry, trying to figure out where they are and who they are. But the point is, God is going to use Gentile nations to come in and take them out. Come back to verse 25. Therefore, the anger of the Lord is kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. The idea here is, and I've said this many, many times before, that God has a covenant with his people, and covenant has good parts and bad parts. It is God's desire and Israel's desire that God show his power in blessing and that Israel be an example to the nation because of the blessings that God has poured out upon them. But there's a flip side. God is not going to bless them when they have abandoned his covenant and are not doing their part because for him to do so would be to cast his name into disrepute. In other words, you can treat this God just any old way you want. It doesn't matter. He will still bless you no matter what. By the way, there are sects of Christianity that sort of feel that way. And what God is saying, no, you're still going to be my people. You can't get out of that. You made a covenant with me. You agreed to the covenant. So if you are not living up to the good parts of the covenant, then I am going to invoke the bad parts of the covenant, and you're still going to be my people, but everybody is going to see that I am just and that I uphold both ends of the covenant, and so they're going to see you in exile as opposed to being blessed in the land. One of the things that we don't have is a prophet. In the first place, God does not send prophets to you when you are doing a good job. So when Israel is doing well, everything just goes well and they're blessed. When things go badly, God sends them a prophet. And the first thing the prophet says is repent. Knock this stuff off. And if they listen, well, nothing else happens if they repent. The ones that make the book, the Isaiahs, the Jeremiahs, the Ezekiels, and so forth, were sent as prophets and they got blown off. Yeshua got blown off. No, but we're not going to do what you told us to do. And at that point, the prophet switches into parables and tells them what's about to happen. I am not suggesting that men of God in the United States have not been able to look around and see what our problem is and appropriately call for repentance. I'm not suggesting that at all. What I'm saying is the structure of Israel is such that you've got three branches of government, if you will. You've got the priests, you've got the king, and you've got the prophet. Each one of those has a different voice. So the voice of the king, for example, is Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and words of wisdom. The voice of the priest is Leviticus and so forth. How do you worship? The voice of the prophet is the prophets. And each one of those speaks for God in a certain area. Anybody who reads the Bible looks at the United States and, and sees everything you see. But we don't have the office of the prophet. And, you know, one of the things the prophets did, they walk into the throne room of the king. And they grab the king by the stacking swivel and they say, hey, O king, you're not doing well. You need to repent and you need to get this sorted out. Nathan did that with David. And if you read the book of Kings, you find that as you have, you know, Hezekiah and Ahaz and all those guys, all of them had prophets coming and talking to them. And sometimes they paid attention and sometimes they didn't. And that's why he starts this chapter off by saying, what more could I have done? 
men of Judah and Jerusalem, witness, tell me what more I could have done. Of course, the answer is nothing. And from there then flow the consequences of disobedience.